Can you say something? Sure. I'm speaking loud and clear. Those are the magical sounds of Dimitri Greenberg on the jazz piano. Dimitri and I have crossed paths at many weddings where he and his band lit up the dance floors. Dimitri joined me in the studio to talk about his journey from the Ukraine to becoming one of the best known wedding entertainers in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, I'll try to keep it short. And to the point, so I, I was born in 1972 in the Ukraine, uh, which, as you know, at the time was part of the USSR. And uh, I was born in the family of uh, a metallurgical engineer and a pianist. Uh, so the most like, important thing that I remember about living in the Soviet Ukraine um, is that, you know, life was a permanent struggle. You know, it was very difficult to get by, uh, especially for those who like, belong to certain minorities or were not members of the Communist Party. Basically, for anyone who uh, who wasn't willing to compromise their like, integrity and principles for the sake of career advancement or uh, like favorable treatment by the government and authorities. So, uh, my family was like 100% Jewish, and my parents were not communists. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were like very anti-communist. So, uh, career opportunities were kind of limited, and they they had to work very hard. Uh, yet it was barely enough to uh, make the ends meet, you know. And uh, still, uh, in spite of all these circumstances, they both gave everything they could for me to have the best education possible. Uh, and uh, many years later, you know, when I became a teacher, I realized that uh, every child is a potential genius. I mean, there is no exceptions to this, this rule. Uh, it's, it's just amazing how, how much information uh, a child's brain can absorb, process, and retain if only you as a parent uh, dedicate enough time and effort to developing your child's natural abilities. So my parents did just that. They spent an enormous amount of time with me on a daily basis. And uh, thanks to them, by the time I was three, I think, I was perfectly capable of reading quite complex literature. I, I would like quote Pushkin's poems dozens of pages at a time by heart. I would read uh, ancient Greek uh, mythology, which I loved as a kid. Uh, and sometimes, especially when left unattended, I would just grab a book that I couldn't possibly comprehend at the time, you know, but like the Bible, for example, or Tolstoy's novels. It was like paradise to me. You know, I wouldn't understand the word, but the very ability to, to understand the written word, uh, I think, expanded my horizons like, exponentially. Mm. And... Uh, I think it was about the same time when I first began showing my uh, propensity for music, mm -hmm. which uh, is hardly surprising because uh, I was surrounded by music from day one, my mother being a pianist and all. I basically grew up under her grand piano 
the State Conservatory of Music, where she worked as a as an accompanist at the stringed instruments department. Uh, she played at home all the time. Plus, uh, I had this. My parents had this uh, old uh, turntable and lots and lots of records. So there was music around me, twenty four seven basically. And so I grew up in this environment for the next few years, and then a miracle happened. Uh, thanks to my late mom, uh, God bless her memory. I mean, she did something that I think a very few parents would do for their kids, in spite of all these, you know, dire financial circumstances and you know the hardship of, you know, everyday living. She she took a leave of, of absence uh, in the middle of a uh, school year, and she borrowed as much money as she could from her parents and relatives and uh, friends and whatnot. And she bought two train tickets, and we went to Moscow. And Moscow at that time was uh, one of the most prominent cultural centers of the world. And, uh, you know, it was basically a showcase city, uh, in a sense, because the Communist Party tried really hard to demonstrate, you know, to the foreign visitors and observers just how great the life is under the communist regime. So they, they would collect the best musicians, the best artists, the best dancers, top directors, and so on and so forth in, in this area, in, in Moscow. Uh, Moscow had the best museums, the, the most advanced concert halls and theaters. And I mean, everything great that Russia had to offer was basically concentrated in Moscow. And uh, it's it's very important to understand, just to comprehend how risky this gamble was and how heroic what was what my mom did, uh, because at the time uh, migration to Moscow was strictly limited and very closely monitored. I mean, you couldn't just legally reside in Moscow unless you were born and raised there, or you were given a special permanent resident status due to some exceptional circumstances. Uh, I, I think it's much easier to get a green card in the U.S. these days than it was back in the 80s, you know, to, to become a permanent resident in Moscow. It was really hmm. mission impossible. So how, how old were you when your mom uh, went to, to Moscow? And you said she got two train tickets? Yeah. So she took you. Yeah, and, and we went together. And you went together. And it wasn't just a... a like a, a visit, it was the intent was to move there and to live there. Her idea was to get me into a great school where I could develop my my natural abilities as a musician. Because by that time, I'd already play piano and uh, sing like at, at a very high level. I would say, um, as as a kid, of course. I mean, it, it's there's nothing like special about it because later on when I when I started my formal education, you know, I was surrounded by uh, lots and lots of kids who were just as gifted or even more talented than I was at the time. So it, it was common practice to, to gather like, the best kids from every corner of the country and, uh, you know, have mm. them learn how to become real musicians. Got it. So your mom was your primary teacher up until that time? She was yes, the one that yes, okay, yes. inspired you and taught you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And so the idea was leave Ukraine and, and take you to Moscow and find a way for you to stay there. Yeah, because Moscow at the time was the only place, and probably still is, you know, where you could really achieve something in terms of education because the teachers there are second to none. Hmm. So, so what she, happened when you arrived? 
Well, uh, at first we would just wander from place to place because she had no relatives in Moscow who could potentially give us shelter, you know. Uh, so we we were like a couple of nomads, you know, going from place to place. And uh, only now I understand how difficult it must have been for her and uh, uh, how much she had to sacrifice in order for that to happen. Uh, and then after some time in Moscow, uh, this incredible woman, this like, I don't know, fearless Jewish mother, you know, she, she pulled yet another absolutely unbelievable stunt. She somehow got me an audition with uh, one of the most brilliant professors at Moscow State Conservatory of Music, which probably still is number one musical educational uh, institution in the country. It was like, completely unbelievable. But I, I was 10. What did I know? I, I had no idea. I, I couldn't possibly comprehend the, the magnitude of what was about to happen. And that's, I think what played a positive role in all this, because I, I don't remember being scared at all. You know, I had no stage fright because I, I, I was like, okay, I'm asked to do what I love to do, so it shouldn't be a problem. So we went into this room and uh, there were like usual greetings and I just went straight to the piano and I started playing and singing. And as soon as, as uh, I was done, Professor Tevlin said to my mother, uh, look, Natalie, this is a very gifted kid. I'm calling the art director of Moscow Choir College right away, and I will give Dima the best possible recommendations. So leave me your phone number, and I'll get in touch with you as soon as there are any developments. And uh, magically, the very next day, he called my mother at her friend's apartment, and he said, uh, okay, they're ready for you. And so we went to yet another audition, this time Moscow Choir College, which, which is a legendary establishment. And... Uh, this time it was really scary because as we walked into the director's office, we discovered a whole bunch of people waiting for us there, all the professors and uh, the art director himself, of course, and uh, his assistant and the school administrator and even a pianist. You know, they, they invited an accompanist just for this audition. So it, it was kind of nerve-wracking. You know? was, was this a, a, a singing audition or was this a yeah, playing yeah, audition? it was a singing audition. So the first one was you played the piano. I sang and accompanied myself. I see. That was the first one where the, the director, it was a Devlin, mm -hmm. said that, uh, you know, that this is great. And then the second one was just a singing one. Yeah, but then something really funny happened, uh, maybe because I was nervous this time, you know. When uh, Viktor Popov asked me what I would like to sing and I called some tune, uh, even before the pianist could start playing, I said, uh, excuse me, if you don't mind terribly, I would like to accompany myself on this one. And then there was this awkward moment where everybody would just stare at each other, like gulping in disbelief, you know, probably thinking to themselves, what the hell this kid thinks he is? And uh, then everybody stared at Popov and he just chuckled and like nodded at the pianist. And so he slid over and I sat at the piano and I started singing and playing. And uh, I, I, I was getting increasingly nervous because of the overall atmosphere in the room. And I think it reached its peak when the last chord kind of dissipated in the air. And then there was this moment of silence uh, during which I was nearly panicking. Because what, what's the verdict? What's going to happen now? And then Popov just turned to the uh, school administrator and he said, uh, well, the picture is quite clear. Find the kid a bunk 
in the dormitory. Uh, I, I failed to mention that Moscow Choir College is a boarding school for uh, gifted youth, so uh, out-of-town students have to live on, on on campus in the dorm. So this is how I got admitted to one of the best educational institutions in the country in the middle of a school year. No entry exams, just based on this single audition. It was a miracle, and it was probably the most important thing that happened in my professional life. That's That's such an interesting story. So you... Your your mother basically uprooted you from your school in Ukraine. Did she prepare you for what was going to happen, or did she just sort of say, you know, here's your coat, here's your bag, let's go? Or? She was very uh, open and upfront with me about what she was trying to achieve, right. and she was very honest about, you know, the chances of it happening being very slim. You know, given our background and uh, you know the fact that we just come from you know, middle of nowhere, some, I don't know, coal mine town in Russia, uh, in, in the Ukraine. Uh, so uh, she tried, kind of tried to keep my expectations at a reasonable level. But of course, she was she was uh, full of hopes. And so, so was I. But yeah, I mean, I mean you were you were a 10 year old kid. Yeah. So you were it sounds like you were a very intelligent kid. And so you probably by that point understood the some of the implications of, of what it was. Well, not not entirely. Okay. I mean, no matter how how many books you read by the time you're 10 years old, I mean, still you, you lack the experience, you know, and uh, in depth understanding of the complexity of life. And uh, some things just uh, appear to be very simple and natural to you, where in fact they're not. So, uh, and your and your father, he stayed behind in Ukraine at that yes, time. Yes. Yes. Okay. And you yeah. said it was pretty dangerous for her to to kind of embark on this adventure. Where well, it, it it was a very risky endeavor. Uh, okay. Yeah, definitely. And what were some of the risks, if, for example, like if she was if it was discovered that she was leaving with you from her. Um, mandated place of residency to go to the capital? Well, that wasn't the plan. I mean, she she returned back to, to the Ukraine and I stayed in Moscow. That's how it the, the system worked at the time. I mean, the kids would just live in the dorm and the parents would just wait for them at home. She, she could have lost her job, which would have been a, a complete disaster, you know, given the overall situation. And uh, I mean, just the trip itself, you know, being in a, in a strange city with, I don't know, 10 millions of people, you know, where you don't know anyone and you have no friends to support you, no relatives, you are basically on your own. It's it's a, uh, like, cement jungle, you know. It's it's like, you know, you, you, you take a kid from San Francisco and just drop him in the middle of Manhattan. A 10-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much how, yeah. how I felt at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. so crazy. And so... Uh, she got you. I mean, it sounds like your your mom was such an important figure in your life that she well, she, she, she poured she, everything. She was definitely one of the most influential people in my life, if not the very the the, the most influential person. In did my you life. did you have siblings at that time? Not at that time. Okay. Not until I was seventeen. Got it. Got it. So you were the only son, and off you go to to Moscow to study. Okay, and what was that like? Like the moment when uh, your mother left back to Ukraine and you were there in the dormitory and the, by I, yourself? I, I blend right in. I mean, it, it was fun. I mean, we, I, I spent the, the most amazing four years in the college and probably the most important years in, in my professional life. 
because this is where the foundation was laid down for everything uh, I've done ever since, music-wise, thanks to our amazing professors who were so dedicated to this noble task of passing the knowledge and their wisdom to us young kids and to teaching us how to be real musicians, real professionals. And this is something that I carry with me to this day and something I use to this day in my uh, everyday practice. Uh, the amount of information I absorbed as a student was incredible. It's, it's impossible to overestimate. I mean, piano, uh, vocal training, music history, music theory, uh, conducting. I mean, this is um, the, the base of everything I do right now as, as a musical and art director at my own company. It, yeah. That's that's amazing, and I, and I've heard that um, your adolescence is a time when the things that you are exposed to, the things that you experience, become deeply, deeply rooted at, at the foundations of who you then later become as a person. And I can think of that too. Like some of the um, things that I experienced in the United States right around that same age, like ten, eleven years old, when I was just a couple years of of living here in the U.S. Um, they're some of the most foundational, like, uh, you know, music and, and concepts and, and moments, you know, just little things like even down to uh, a basketball game that I watched on TV when I was uh, 11 years old or whatever, that kernel is, is there forever, you know, so the fact that you were exposed to such rich educational concepts and musical concepts at that age, that must have been quite, a, quite an impression on you. Oh, absolutely. What was it like being there? How many other kids were there? Like, can you describe the um, environment a little bit? We had a dorm um, uh, with a few rooms. Um, in, in each room, there were like 15 to 25 beds, you know. So uh, we had small classes. In my class, there were, I think, 15 students. Um, and we would uh, have two hours of choir practice every morning. And then we would uh, have lectures on like general disciplines such as uh, psychology, math, literature, and so on and so forth. And then we would have some free time, and then homework, and then back to bed. So right. Was it a co-ed uh, dorm? No, no, no. It was boys only. Boys only. Mm -hmm. Okay. Boys only. And that was the, uh, the best boys choir in the country, the choir of Moscow Choir College. Done. Yeah. So you did a little bit of everything. You didn't initially specialize in any one instrument or any one discipline. They had you singing, playing piano, learning music theory. They didn't. They didn't say, um, "Oh, you're going to specialize in, in piano." Like there was, it was kind of open ended, or was it? No, it, it wasn't an option. This, the 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 curriculum was aimed uh, exclusively on uh, us becoming choir conductors in the future. But for that to happen, we had to to um, to learn to play piano at a very high level, and to learn all the musical disciplines extensively. But the the primary goal was for us to to become conductors. Okay, uh, so the, you were exposed to all kinds of different musical instruments that can be found just in a piano. Just, just piano, just just piano. Yeah. Okay. What were some of the most challenging experiences that you had? Because I mean, just from what you describe, it sounds like. It was an amazing experience for you overall, very inspiring. Were there difficulties? Were there challenges that you came up against being there? The only thing I can remember was the first year uh, when 
it suddenly became apparent that my piano skills were not good enough uh, because you know I um, I used to attend the music school in Donetsk in the Ukraine where uh, the level of education wasn't quite there so uh, that first year was uh, a huge challenge for me but then uh, I found a great teacher uh, who just turned my life around and she changed the way I approached the piano mm. and she she saved my my uh, life as a pianist so you That's were sure. you were like a, a a rookie you know they say when you get to the not to, uh, to use a sports analogy but they say when you when you get to the national football league as a football player every single person who was there was the fastest person on their college team and the best person on their college team that's kind of what you experienced exactly. you you thought you were great. Your your mom gave you everything that she had when you came. You realized uh, how much you had to learn. Then you found, it sounds like you found a really good mentor. Mm-hmm. And so f- four years of this type of education at the end, was there a final exam? Was there something that some something you had to pass in order to graduate? Yes, yes. The, there was a state exam, which uh, I uh, didn't, uh, didn't pass because I quit... Uh, before it happened, because when uh, when I was I think like 14 years old, uh, all of a sudden it became apparent to me that uh, classical music is probably not the right choice for me. Uh, it wasn't something I, I would like to do for the rest of my life. It wasn't the career I would like to pursue uh, because it was the time mm, when uh, the Iron Curtain began rising slowly, and there was this massive influx of the new music I had never heard before, like rock and pop and jazz, and it was absolutely mind-blowing. And, uh, you know, living many years in this classical bubble, all of a sudden you get exposed to this whole new world of music that you'd never experienced before, and it it can be life-changing. All of a sudden I felt the need for a change. You know, I, I felt that, you know, I wanted to become something different. So uh, I, I just quit, and you know, after a couple of years, I ended up being a freshman at Ukrainian State Conservatory of Music, uh, majoring in jazz piano. Interesting. Well, so I want to rewind to that a little bit. So uh, you're in this school; it's extremely rigorous and and extremely um, fulfilling for you. Sounds like, um, and you found a person who's a great mentor, and you have. I'm guessing your your mom was in contact with you, supporting you, visiting you while you were there in the school. Yeah, yeah, I see you're nodding. Um, and uh, and then at a certain point, you just made the decision to leave. You were, for, what, 14 years old at that point, 15? I think so, yes. Okay. What was that like? I mean, was there, could you just like walk out the door? Was the, Were there people discouraging you from leaving or what, what, what happened? Well, um, at some point, you know, my professors uh, said, you know what, either get serious about it or just quit. Right. So uh, I, I thought to myself, what am I going to do? Do I really want to be a classical musician? Did, uh, they, did they feel like you were um, distracted by some of this oh, new yeah, music and stuff? What, I mean, what was, it, what was it like? Were you, how were you getting access to all this cool new like, music from the West? Were you getting tapes? Were you getting uh, you know, people like passing you secret packages. I don't even know what it was like back then to, to get that kind of music. Well, you know, at that time, uh, this music was distributed uh, on like pirate discs and cassettes and whatnot. 
and uh, if you had enough cool friends, you know, you could uh, get your hands on a couple of those and, uh, you know, listen to Queen and uh, The Who and stuff like that. And uh, uh, besides, you know, it, it was the time where there was a um, very active musical underground in Moscow. Uh, people who worked uh, by day as uh, like official pop stars, you know, would teach classes underground, you know, trying to uh, pass their knowledge about uh, Western music that wasn't allowed in the Soviet Union at the time to the young generation. So we would just explore these places, you know, and play in this underground bands and um, we would play covers and we would compose our own stuff. So uh, at some point it uh, started, you know, seriously interfering with my uh, educational program, my classical education. Interesting. So was, well, uh, was, was there um, like a line of communication between the school and your parents? Did they give feedback? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so were you getting pressure from your parents? Were they talking to you and saying, wait a minute, you know, I took all, you know, took all these risks, sacrificed so much to get you into the school, and now you're uh, being a rebel, <laughs> goofing off and playing uh, nightclubs and, you know, being uh, unduly influenced by Western music. What was that like? Uh, well, uh, I mean, they just rolled with the punches, I guess. I mean, they, they never pressured me into doing anything I didn't want to do, for which I'm eternally grateful you know they they were like the greatest the greatest parents in the world in in, in this regard and in many others uh so they they kind of understood my situation so we tried a few more uh, colleges uh in moscow and in in the ukraine and it just wasn't it you know so uh actually what they did as as i see it you know looking back they gave me the opportunity to kind of find out what's best for me you know they they gave me the luxury of time you know and the the opportunity to look around and see what i wanted to do because at, at that point i wasn't quite sure myself whether i wanted to be a pop musician or a rock musician or maybe a jazz pianist i ended up being a jazz pianist but so they didn't say, hey, um, you know, just, just stick through it. You're almost through the four years. Just stay with it, you know, take the exam. No, actually, I, I finished the four years. I mean, uh, everything was fine in this regard. You know, oh, okay. I had my transcripts and everything, and ev everything was cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. I misunderstood. I thought you dropped out before you finished the full Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't go through the uh, final three years. Okay. Oh, so uh, it which, was... which is basically college level, like an academy level. I see. So it's kind of like a bachelor's, master's much, degree. Yeah. And you it's basically... It's really hard to draw parallels because, you know, the educational systems here and there sure. are quite different. So it's really hard to find common ground. What What's considered to be higher education there mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's like a few steps above what, what we have here. In terms of higher education, right. so that, that makes sense. It's, yeah, it's, so so you were then you were on a track basically. You you got into this uh, school and it it was a track that you could pursue all the way through. Uh, and at a certain point, you reached a, a milestone, which was you know you completed the four years. And at that point, your teachers basically like said, "Hey, get serious about well, this track." What What's important to understand here is it's it's not that I, I was getting bad grades or anything, uh, but you know the very nature of 
you know, being a student at such prestigious institutions uh, implies that you, you need to work your butt off day by day, nonstop. You need to be like 100% dedicated and fanatical about what you're doing. Mm, otherwise, that's a good word. otherwise, it's just not going to cut it. So if you are a mediocre student, I mean, you better quit. I mean, you, you can make it, you know, to the end and graduate and uh, even maybe get admitted to another institution, you know, to continue your education, but it's not going to do anything for you. And I'm grateful to my teachers that they just wouldn't let me waste years of my life doing something I wasn't prepared to do for the rest of my life. Right, right. They saw that you had a passion that was elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. They were very direct and upfront about it. They said, if you don't feel the urge to become something we, we were trying to, to make you, then just do something else. Do something that you have, you know, passion for. So here you are, you're, uh, what, 14, 15 years old in Moscow, living in the dorms, mm -hmm. and then you come to the end of that, and, and what happens next? And then I, um, I got admitted to um, yet another college uh, under the patronage of Moscow State Conservatory. Uh, and uh, this time I tried to explore the field of music theory, music theory, music history, and uh, everything related to that. And it, it was very clear to me right from the beginning that it was, it was even worse than what I had before. It was so boring. It, I, I was not cut out for that. So I, I stopped like after three or four months. So I went back home, the Ukraine, and after quite a few perturbations, I, I ended up uh, getting into the State Conservatory of Music in the Ukraine, in Donetsk, uh, majoring in jazz piano. At that time, I already knew uh, that's something I want to, to pursue, something I want to mm. do. So you had to cross some things off your list before you finally got mm -hmm. to, to a place where you felt your passion mm -hmm. was jazz piano. And so you were back in Ukraine, and you you lived at home with your parents at that time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And what this was probably what 1987, 1988, something. Uh, 1990. 1990. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. So this was bef right before the the fall of the Soviet Union, or it was right before right before the, the USSR collapsed. Yeah. Right. So that's pretty intense. So you enter a new school, and there's this kind of crazy, you know, situation happening geopolitically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. Was there any discussion in your home about what was going on? Was it affecting how your family was thinking about the future, how you were thinking about the future at that time? Well, for as long as I can remember, my, my family has always been like, we need to get out of here. I mean, it's impossible. Uh, we need to get out of here. But at the same time, my parents understood that leaving the country would jeopardize their parents. And uh, like my mother's parents, who were teachers, so basically they worked a government job, and having like a family member who just escaped the country would definitely ruin their lives professionally and on a, on the personal level and many other levels. So we just we we couldn't leave. So we decided to wait for the right moment because you know the situation was changing rapidly. And there was hope that uh, it will the, the society will become more uh, liberal and democratic, and uh, the restrictions would be lifted, and 
everybody would be able to live where they want to live. So we just waited until 1995. I I graduated from the uh, Academy of Music, and I think a month later, I was already in Tel Aviv. I I just got out as soon as I could. Because at that time, uh, living in the Ukraine had become really dangerous, you know, and, uh, politically unstable, uh, crime was on the rise, and, and anti-Semitism was... I mean, it's always been a factor there. But by 1995, it was kind of really shady. You know? Yeah. And so you you decided to immigrate to Israel, not to the United States. Well, I first applied for uh, permanent residence, residence in the U.S. when I was 16, when I was still in Moscow. Uh, but I, I never heard back from them. So the only way for me to actually leave the Ukraine legally was to go to Israel. And I, I, I took my chances. I, I remember when we were, uh, in, I mean, I was um, even much younger than, than you were when you started school in Moscow. I think I was maybe six or seven years old when I kind of felt that process being set in motion for, for my parents. But I remember that a lot of the people that were leaving our little town in Belarus, uh, it was much easier to go to Israel at that time. And we left in uh, 1990, just before mm-hmm. um, everything happened. So uh, it was much more of a fast track to, to get out to Israel than it was to immigrate to the United States. So a lot of people ended up going that that path. Okay. So you end up in Israel and you're, what, uh, 17 years old, 18 years old? No, at the time... Oh, no, no, this is 95, right? It's 95, yeah. Okay, so, so you're 23. 23. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you arrived by yourself or you came with your parents? I, I went first, okay. all alone, to kind of, you know, do some... Reconnaissance. Reconnaissance, <laughs> exactly, yeah, to, to figure out what's what. And uh, I started working right away. And it was really funny because you know I had no idea how to find work in Israel, and I, uh, I didn't speak any Hebrew, and uh, I didn't speak any other language, you know, other than Russian. So I just started walking down the beach in Tel Aviv, stopping at every hotel, looking inside the lobby and look for a piano, and if I would find a piano, I would start playing. You would uh, just walk in, sit down, and start yeah, playing. Yeah. It's- <laughs> It was crazy, you know, I understand, but, you know, it, it was one of those uh, insane adventures, you know, that sometimes just pan out to, to be great, you know. And uh, I think it was the third hotel where a dude with a, with a saxophone approached me, and he was like, hey, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from the Ukraine. And he is like, yeah, me too. Okay, so I work here. We were on, on a break, and then I heard you play. Let me introduce you to our boss. And that's how I got my first job in Israel as a, as a pianist. How interesting. How interesting how that ties back to your very first experiences sort of under pressure back in, in Moscow, right? When you had this crazy audition with all these people watching and you sort of, uh, you, you did something that really broke the mold. You kind of just, you know, maybe you were a little bit naive at the time, but you said, no, I want to accompany myself, right? You sort of went outside the box and sounds like that's been a part of your personality and carried over. Well, certainly immigrating from, from the USSR or from Russia at that point or Ukraine to, uh, to Israel, uh, that's kind of a big leap of faith as it is. And so it sounds like it wasn't too much of a stretch for you to just start wandering into hotel lobbies and sitting yeah, down. At the time, you know, I, I was under the impression that, you know, if things are bound to happen, they will happen. So you, you need to just, you know, uh, forget your fears and, Dive in head first. Sometimes I, I, I feel the urge to do it 
you know, even now uh, that I am 45, I, I kind of, you know, uh, hold myself back because now, now I have m many more responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you are in the uh, hotel lobby of a hotel on, in the beach in Tel Aviv and you sit down at a piano and you just start playing and uh, a, a, f a fellow Ukrainian comes up and, and he, he knew that you were kind of like a fresh off the boat person. He approached yeah, you. Yeah, I think it was very obvious. At yeah, that point, you know? yeah, yeah. So he, they, you met with the band, and they were they liked you, and they they hired you, and they they hired me. It it wasn't a band per se. It was a huge company that dealt with uh, most of the weddings happening in Tel Aviv and the surrounding area, and the owner had, uh, I think, probably three hundred musicians under his wing. And he would just distribute them, you know, as need arose, you know. And uh, it was a um, sweatshop, in a sense, because he made us work three, four gigs a day with a very um, modest uh, wages. Uh, I mean, I, I would make approximately $500 a month. Working from 7 a.m., I would start at 7 a.m. playing at the breakfast in the hotel, and I would end up playing uh, four gigs throughout the day, ending way past midnight, uh, without weekends, without holidays. I mean, that's that's how the system works in Israel. You know, the new immigrants usually get exploited really hard. You know, until they find their own way. So. Uh, it, it was a great start for me anyway, because, you know, it uh, kind of got me in touch with some absolutely incredible musicians. And it definitely lifted my professional abilities because I, I, I would get to play with great musicians on a daily basis, three or four times a day. So it was great practice and it kept me afloat. And then I, I just realized that it, it was taking too much of my energy and uh, I needed to find something else. Right. So it, it's interesting you talk about sort of the sweatshop atmosphere because when I was interviewing my father, we sort of we went from um, you know all the way through through his father's my grandfather's story, and through to our own story the immigration of our family to the United States and how my father ended up here as a new immigrant trying to support uh, a family of you know uh, his wife and mother in law and three boys, um, and he was an engineer by training but he. Uh, had had some photography training back in uh, in Russia uh, from my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And when he came here, he um, tried to use that photography training um, to, to get some job. And so through the Jewish community, he got connected with a, a, a professional portrait photographer in the South Bay. And um, he came into the studio, and she kind of gave him a chance to sort of audition. Uh, and... Uh, after he tried to, to work with the equipment that she had there, she basically said, look, I don't think you, you've got the skills to work with the kind of things that we do here and, and be a photographer, but um, you know, here, here's a guy that knows a guy, essentially, and she connected him with um, somebody very similar to the person that ran your you know, music outfit in Israel. It was a guy that was running a, a videography business in San Jose, and he had multiple videographers that he paid very little money to go out and shoot every weekend. My father did, I think, the equivalent of what you did, which is he uh, came in and uh, the guy asked him, do you have experience uh, shooting 
with a, a video camera, a professional video camera. My dad said, sure, of course. You know, and so he gave him a camera and sent him out, uh, came back, and after he shot it, uh, you know, the guy watched the video and said, you haven't touched the camera in your life, you know. Uh, so there's, it's interesting how, like, as immigrants, uh, you have to make this, so you have to fake it till you, till you make it, in a sense, you know. And then he did the same thing. He worked his butt off for very little money um, until he kind of got fed up with it, so... What a what an interesting parallel. You know, you went to a totally different part of the world, but had a very similar experience like that in Israel. Oh, you know, I'm sure if you ask like 20 different people, you'll get 20 different stories, but you will always find something in common, you know, some something that unites the stories because, you know, by and large, I mean, every immigration story is, uh, you know, very similar to the next. I mean, That's right. That's kind of the point of this uh, podcast, too. You said, you know, get 20 different people, 20 different stories. I kind of want to do that experiment and, and, and find out those stories. So, and then there was this other thing, too, that I heard a long time ago about the Beatles, how they, maybe it was Malcolm Gladwell or somebody that, that was talking about uh, this concept of 10,000 hours of practice. Uh, and one of the stories that I think he brought up was, was the Beatles, that before they ever made it big, they played in some club in either Hamburg or someplace. You know about this story? I, I heard something. Yeah, yeah, they played for you know for a long time, low-paying gigs, crazy hours of the night or whatever. They played at some club and they cut their teeth in that place before they were sort of ready to you know hit the big time. And that was the experience that propelled them. Uh, yeah. So you you did the same thing in Israel. Then you had like a real sort of boot camp in a way pretty much Learn, yeah. learning not only like using your skills but learning what the business is and and how to interact with you know, people. How things are done, you know, and right. to me, the most important thing at that point was learning the language right. so I could communicate with my clients in the future, you know, and, you know, make things happen. I mean, if you are mute and deaf, I mean, no matter how good you are professionally, you're not going to make it. Right. How long did you spend there at the, at the, at that? Was it like one specific hotel you played at or you were oh, sort no. of sent to different spots? They would send us to play all over the country. Well, thank God it's not a very big country. You know, it's only 600 kilometers long. So, That's right. yeah, it was really easy to travel from one place to another. But uh, I think we've played at every venue that there, there is in Israel. Wow. Were you like literally, uh, I, I'm getting this uh, uh, image of a like a band like packs themselves into a van, you know, drives from one place to the other. Was that literally what you did? More or less, yeah. They they would the company would provide transportation, okay. or sometimes they would just pay us for a bus ticket, you know. Because many times I, I had to do my solo act, you know, just the piano, or just the two of us, like piano and uh, upright bass or sax. I mean, they would just shuffle us. I mean, every time we ha we had to play with somebody else. I see. So you had to learn how to work with like brand new people, and and not just work, but uh, on a, on a musical level to like synchronize get with along. them and get along yeah. musically. So you were like a you were a young a young guy, to completely free, you know, in a completely new country, just sort of like making up your life as you go. Well, along. I wasn't completely free, you know. At the time, I uh, I was already married. Oh, you were happily. Yeah. You got married in Israel. In, in the Ukraine. Oh, in the Ukraine. So you met somebody. So then we got to rewind a little bit. So you, you in the Ukraine, while you were studying in Donetsk, you met somebody there. Yeah, I, I met my wife in Dnipropetrovsk, actually. Okay. And uh, she, she was uh, my mother's friend's daughter. Okay. 
so it was kind of out of the blue but we really clicked and uh, you know in 93 we got married she was 19 i was 21 okay so people got married pretty young there uh okay so you so then so then when you went to israel you took your wife along she had to finish her education she, she was one year behind me so she graduated in 96 and moved to israel immediately Okay, and how long had you been there by yourself before that? Uh, about a year. About a year. So you kind of came, to, like you said, did your reconnaissance and yeah, I, laid I was the there groundwork. a little less than a year. Uh, I came to Israel in August '95. By June '96, my wife was already with me, and my mother and my little sister moved uh, moved in with me even before that. Got sometime it. In, in the winter, I think. Were you living in, in Tel Aviv? Uh, the suburbs, you know, the outskirts of Tel Aviv. There is this uh, great little place called Hulan, uh, which means built on the sand. And it's, it's, it's a really nice place. You know, I, I, I miss it incredibly, you know. Mm. Okay. So your family comes out, they, you, you reunite with your wife and, and your mom and your sister and your father? Uh, my father was still uh, tied uh, with some business stuff in, in the Ukraine, trying to like tie it up and you know get out of it painlessly. So it took him a couple of years to uh, to join us, and then uh, he went to America because his parents moved to America and they insisted on him being here. They needed his help, you know, because my grandpa and grandma weren't very healthy at the time and. Uh, they needed some assistance, so being a good son, you know, he moved here, and then gradually he started just pulling us from Israel one by one. Right. And were you obligated to do military service? When uh, you yes, I had to do some uh, some basic training, boot camp, but it wasn't for, uh, for a long time. It wasn't the full three years, because by the time I got drafted, I was already married and had a kid, and I was over 25, so they only made me do three months. I see. Okay. And how uh, how long after your wife rejoined you did you have a kid there in Israel, or was your kid born in? in uh, she was born in ninety uh, eight. In ninety eight. Okay. So in Israel. A couple of years after we reconnected in Israel. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, what what's your daughter's name? Rachel. And by that time in ninety eight, you were still doing the. Uh, the hotel circuit. Yes, I did that uh, and more. Uh, I worked uh, at restaurants and private events uh, on weekends, but it wasn't nearly enough. So uh, I had to do pretty much any kind of job there was. I mean, I was an electrician at some point. I used to be a driver. I used to be a security guard. I used to be a elderly caregiver. I mean, whatever I could lay my hands on, I, I would grab because. I mean, no one could help me or support me. I, I was on my own, and my wife had to work really hard, and she also needed to, to get the education she wanted because she uh, always wanted to, to become a programmer. So uh, that's what eventually happened. She found the course that she liked and uh, finished it with flying colors and uh, became a programmer, and she, she's been a great programmer ever since. And that gave me, in turn, you know, the opportunity to quit all those odd jobs and start concentrating on my primary occupation. And by by the time uh, it was, I think, the seventh year of our uh, Israeli life, 
uh, I was already leading a band on uh, Channel 9 of the Israeli National TV. Mm. So this, this is how we helped each other. Right. Right. You could rely on her and really mm-hmm. re- refocus all of your efforts into the music. This was uh, like close to 2000 by that point? or was Yes. That, that was towards the end of your time in Israel? That was probably two or three years before I moved to the U.S. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then what was that like for you? Because you, it sounds like you've had many kind of restarts in a way in, in your life where you were in one place, like in the Moscow Conservatory, decided that it wasn't quite your passion, wanted to do something else. So you, in, in some sense, started over. Um, then you left the Ukraine and went to Israel in some sense, starting over again from scratch, especially with the language barrier and all that. Um, and so here you are kind of at the end of your time in Israel, getting ready to start over one more time, but now you have a family and, uh, you sounds like you have kind of an established, at least some sense of an established career. You were on television. What was that like at that point? Oh, it was great. I mean, that was a great time. You know, where everything was going our way and everybody was happy. You know, my wife had a great job. I had a great job. And our daughter was just, you know, pure joy. You know, she was growing. It, it was, it's, it's amazing, you know, to, to watch your child grow. It's, it was a happy time. And uh, as every good thing in our life, you know, eventually it comes to, to an end. So we went to visit my parents in the U.S., and the very next day, my mother got sick, I mean, terminally ill, and uh, they, they discovered that, you know, her cancer had sp- like spread all over her body. And uh, at that point, I realized that there is no way back for me. I, I couldn't just go back to Israel. I had to stay with my mother. So I called my uh, fellow colleagues you know, on the television, and I told them that uh, I won't be coming back. So this is how my uh, American odyssey began. So almost like your your hand was forced in a way. You were you were maybe getting ready f- to move to America, but your mother's illness. I always wanted to live in America ever since I was sixteen. As I as I said, you know, I first applied for um, uh, for a green card when I was sixteen. Mm-hmm. Never heard back from them. Uh, so at some point, I thought to myself, maybe it's time to settle down. You know, just be happy with what you have. You know, live in Israel, do your stuff. But the, the thought never left me. You know, I always wanted to move here because, you know, uh, I had this uh, idealistic picture of America in my head, you know, mostly from the movies, I guess, you know. And uh, it, it, it wasn't quite what I discovered when I came here. But still, I always wanted to immerse myself into this atmosphere because, um, well, first of all, I'm a jazz musician. And New York is jazz mecca. Right, it's something that you just have to see at least once in your life. Is that where your family was at that point? No, they they were in San Francisco. But what did I know? I had no idea. I thought that the West Coast is just uh, rich in musical terms as the East Coast, Chicago, New Orleans. You know, I thought San Francisco. That's that's very sophisticated. I mean, there must be a great jazz scene there. Well, not exactly, <laughs> but I mean, th- this knowledge came a little bit too late. <laughs> mm. So you, uh, then you moved, you, you, you came here, you stayed here um, to care for your mom, and did Rachel and your wife stay back in Israel at that They time? went back to Israel, and I would just fly back and forth, which was very difficult, 
as, as you can imagine. Um, and then when my mom finally passed away, uh, it was kind of too late for me to, to go back to Israel because, I mean, there was no job for me. You know, my place had already been taken. And I, I didn't feel like starting over in Israel because it was a very painful experience. So uh, we figured that we, we, we'd better start over here, mm. where we have my father and my sister, who who needs my support because she was 14 at the time when, when our mom passed away. Uh, and also, you know, I had some leads here. You know, there were some people willing to work with me, willing to hire me. So I thought, why not? And then my wife found a job here and uh, they gave her a working visa. So we kind of got the, the ability of legally staying here, which was the first step in the right direction. And that, that was in 2004 that we moved to San Francisco permanently. So that was really yet another restart in in your life yeah it was a full reset uh and it, it wasn't as scary as the first one because you know once you have lived through the immigration process to israel i think any other place will, will feel so much better <laughs> you know and you you just know the drill sure and you're not afraid anymore sure sure if you've done it once you can do it again well, yeah. I, I, I hope I, I won't have to do it for the third time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I, I think about uh, what that... Because right now I'm approaching the age at which my father, I think, essentially said, okay, we need to get the wheels in motion and to get our family to America. And I think about my life today and, again, some of the things that you experienced in terms of being established in a certain way, having a certain rhythm to your life, uh, you know, being settled down. And uh, you think about that and you you realize not only are you going to a place and, and starting anew, but to remove, let's say, your ability to communicate with people because you don't know the language. Take all the money and all the assets out of your pocket, come to a place with almost nothing. Uh, it seems totally insane, you know. And any time I think about my parents... Um, any decisions that they've made subsequently in their lives, I always put it in the context of the decision to immigrate and what they must have gone through and how hard they must have worked to just get a foothold to be able to restart their lives. You know, um, that's yeah, that's amazing, and it, it takes a certain amount of uh, resilience and leaves you with a certain amount of resilience. I think going forward, like you said, to be confident that you can start again uh, in in anything you do. You came to San Francisco. 2004, you, you decided to settle here in the city or in the Bay Area somewhere? In the city. In the city, Because okay. that's where my parents had lived for a long time. It was difficult at first, uh, especially when, when you discover that, you know, once again you are mute and deaf and you need to interact with people who don't understand what you are saying and you don't understand them either. So uh, that was challenging, but uh, since I had some the connections in the Russian community, you know, my first steps were a little bit easier. Uh, and the, the same can be said about my wife's first job, because uh, she was lucky enough to to have a um, uh, supervisor who was from Israel. So she would, you know, she would be able to communicate with him, you know, using just the Hebrew language. That's pretty fortunate. <laughs> yeah, and, and that gave her ample time to, 
to start learning English. Yeah, so I mean, if there is a will, there is a way, you know. And if if you are determined enough, good things will happen. So. What did you bring with you when you came from Israel to the United States? Did you have a set of musical instruments at that point that you... Uh, I, I had a couple of instruments that okay. I brought with me. And uh, this is like the, the centerpiece of my home studio. And these things were really expensive. So I, I couldn't afford to buy new ones. So I decided to bring whatever I had. Yeah, and they used them for a few good years uh, up until uh, my car got broken into and, you know, these guys <laughs> stole everything I brought from Israel and more. Yeah, that was the only time I left my car unattended for a few hours and yeah. right next to my place in a garden uh, parking lot. Uh, Who good. knew? I know, that's a, that's a whole separate conversation in terms of being a, a technical person uh, in San Francisco today and, and transporting your equipment from place to place. Um, so you, we'll, we'll come back to that because that's also an interesting uh, feeling to, to talk about. Um, but you, you started playing along with uh, some of the Russian uh, musicians here, like working primarily in the Russian community first? That was the first step, yes. Okay, okay. And what types of gigs did you find yourself doing? Uh, mostly weddings and Russian restaurant gigs, you know, like private parties, because, you know, the, the common practice is to have private parties. You know, in the Russian community, they do private parties at a Russian restaurant right? right. On, on weekends. At the same time, I started exploring local jazz scene and they got in touch with a few uh, great musicians uh, whom I love dearly. Uh, we don't get to play together much anymore because our, our ways kind of split, you know, in two different directions. They, they're doing their classical stuff, uh, working for uh, different orchestras in the Bay Area, including San Francisco Symphony and Santa Clara Orchestra and whatnot. And I'm kind of, you know, far away from it, uh, doing primarily private and corporate events. Uh, but, you know, we had a good run. We played some real fun gigs uh, all over the Bay Area and uh, jazz clubs and uh, sushi places and whatnot, wh wherever jazz music is heard these days, you know, very casual, very relaxed. And uh, it was uh, it was a great experience. Uh, but at some point, I just figured it, it wasn't um, it wasn't enough to get by because these gigs don't don't pay much. I mean, it's basically playing for food. Uh, which never was my my aspiration, you know, being a family man, you know, having to support sure, uh, sure. more than one person in, in my life, you know. So uh, I started concentrating on uh, exploring this wedding industry field. Got it. And what was um, what were some of your first experiences? Did you start to join in to other established bands, or did you try to you know get some of your own gigs? What did that look like? I couldn't find a band that would um, really be 100% to my liking. Uh, most of, uh, of the people I met uh, already had things set up their way. And uh, also being a hired musician means that you make much less than you would being uh, like the, the, uh, the leader of the band, right? right. So I, I figured uh, I should probably start working on creating my own outfit, running it. And uh, I, from the start, I I was hoping to create an atmosphere where, you know, people would want to work with me because I would offer them better terms 
uh, money-wise and uh, better relationships, you know, less dictatorship, less pressure, uh, more of a friendly environment. Uh, and this kind of got in the way of being a successful businessman in this field because, as I discovered later on, uh, you need to have a certain level of uh, pressure maintained at all times. Otherwise, people would just, you know, take everything for granted and they won't be willing to rehearse, to in invest extra time in uh, making your band the best there is. And if you are not one of the best, then what's the point? Right. So uh, after a few years of trying different people and uh, different uh, lineups, uh, I kind of gave up and now I work only with a handful of people uh, not from the Bay Area, uh, mostly from New York and Chicago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. So you, because one of the things that I've seen uh, in my experience in the wedding world is that some of the bands are kind of um, a little bit modular, a little bit like plug and play. You know, there's a, a role for a certain type of vocalist, a role for a guitarist, and uh, they are sort of interchangeable a little bit, especially like in the Russian band world, you might see some of the same people playing for different groups of, uh, of different bands. Mm -hmm. um, so I was always wondering about how that works because you have to rehearse uh, in a certain way, right? Like you, you might have one band that, that does things one way, uh, one band that does things another way. Do the people that sort of, um, to use a word I think that you, you said earlier when you were with your mom in Moscow, to be sort of a, a musical nomad, you know, is it um, that you have to attend rehearsals with each band that you play for? Do you have to get to know their style? How does that happen? Well, that depends. And this is one of the reasons uh, I'm hesitant about hiring local talent anymore. Uh, when it comes to really professional musicians, such as people I work with uh, who are based in New York and Chicago, they have such a vast repertoire uh, and I mean, they can be easily held responsible for what, a thousand songs and they learn new songs every day as they come out. So w when they come to your gig, they come 100% prepared. You can be absolutely certain that they will perform it exactly as it sounds on a recording. So you won't have to rehearse. I mean, if you know your part and you, you know that they know their part, there is nothing to worry about. So if there are any uh, doubts, you can just work on that during the, the sound check. Because normally we, we start sound check very early, making sure that we have at least three to four hours to m make sure everything works properly. And we can we, we just run a few songs just to make sure everything is, you know, tight. Right, because you know you're playing with people that are extremely experienced and can plug in and be... Um, sort of immediately effective and, and in sync with you and you've played with them before. Absolutely. Would you say that there's a certain place where you, like your your sweet spot in terms of like um, the type of event, the size of an event, the, the feel of an event, something that you enjoy playing the most, like your, your, your happy place as a, as a musician? Well, it's... it's it's very interesting to compare my experience as a as as, uh, as a concert musician and uh, wedding musician because these two are like parallel universes. I mean, they do not intersect. It's totally different. And uh, I've had quite a few concert experiences here. Uh, most memorable ones being uh, 
my performances with San Francisco Symphony at Davis Hall during the concert seasons. It was like four or five seasons, I believe, uh, we accompanied uh, Canadian Brass and Brian Stokes Mitchell and Bernadette Peters and uh, Ronnie Spector. Uh, and uh, while it was very, very interesting and uh, eye-opening in some sense, still it's, it's very different from what I do as a wedding musician. First of all, um, when you perform at a concert, there is very little pressure. Um, the uh, set is predefined. It's predetermined. You know exactly what's going to happen at any given moment. Uh, you can have gaps between songs for as long as you like, you know, to get ready, to turn pages or whatever you need to do. Uh, and there is a bunch of people in the room that came to hear this particular lineup and these particular songs. So they expect something very specific from you. They don't expect anything else. When you work a live event, uh, as opposed to, to a concert, you know, to, to me it's, you know, weddings and corporate events and birthday parties are live events. Sure, sure. It's a completely different mindset and completely different set of requirements. There are no gaps between songs, which, which is, I think, it's, it's a huge problem with American bands. You know, your typical American wedding is when, you know, the band starts playing, I don't know, Superstition by Stevie Wonder, and then there is a 15-second gap where people just stand on the dance floor not knowing what to do while the band leader tries to figure out the key, or everybody is going through their pages trying to find the right chart, or they just decide what, what to play next, and then right. they play your typical Proud Mary or Brick right. House or something right. like that, and... I mean, it adds to the boredom factor. Right. So the way we do it, it is completely different. That's why I prefer to call it live events, because it's, it's nonstop. It's action 100% of the time. Uh, you have this constant contact with the crowd. You try to read the crowd to figure out what they want to hear next. Your basic um, task is at any given moment to just keep the people on the dance floor. You know, keep them involved. And you need to, to be able to, to do a 180-degree turn right there on the spot. If only you feel at some point that there is a slightest deviation in people's mood. So you realize they need to hear something different. You do about face. You start playing something different. So it's, it's a completely different um, feeling in terms of uh, the performance. You know, as, as a performing musician, you know, it's very important to me uh, that um, there is a certain element of improvisation. And uh, during the concert, especially when you are uh, working with a classical ensemble or uh, orchestra, there is no room for improvisation. You know, you need to stick to the score. Uh, when it comes to pop music, rock music, and, uh, jazz especially. I mean, there is always much more freedom in this regard. And when you do a live event, I mean, you can play the same song in a hundred different ways. It will be always fresh. It will be always interesting. So I, I, I must say my, my favorite type of uh, event is a wedding because of all that I, I just mentioned. Plus, uh, you know, it gives you 
this incredible satisfaction to be part of something really unique and great. When, when you see this young couple, you know, having their once-in-a-lifetime event and these emotions that just fill the room and uh, when you become part of something like that, you know, it's, it's incredibly enriching emotionally. So um, I, that's one of the main factors that, you know, came into play when I was deciding what, what, what to do with my life, you know. How many weddings do you think that you have played at by this point in your career? I have no idea. It's really hard to uh, to calculate. Well, if uh, if we do on average 120, 150 events a year, um, I think it would be safe to say that over 25 years, I, I've done, I don't know, 2,000. And this is here in the United States, you think, right? No, it's, uh, I think from 1995 to the present time. Right, so the stuff that you played in Israel and the stuff that you played here. I was thinking also a lot about this distinction between like what constitutes a, a quote-unquote Russian wedding and an, uh, an American wedding, because I deal a lot with these itineraries myself, and I have come to understand that it's like a totally different animal, right? On the one hand, you have... Um, and a more traditional, like, American wedding that might be at a winery or something. Uh, you might have, um, after uh, the ceremony, uh, family pictures of, from, you know, from my side of the world, and then you people kind of go into cocktail hour and dinner, and during dinner there might be one or two or three speeches, and then people kind of have dinner, and then there's some dancing, and usually by, like, 10 p.m., people are kind of, more or less done, right? And they're just hanging out, having cake or whatever. Um, whereas at some of the you know the Russian weddings, that some of the ones we've done together, you're talking about the the reception is just when things get started, right? You have like exactly. a few more hours of of dancing and speeches and music and dancing and speeches and music and dancing and speeches and music, and it just keeps going. Uh, so it it requires a totally different amount of endurance <laughs> to survive Absolutely. something like that and a, a different energy to come into that um you're talking about sort of the the need to sustain that energy to read the crowd to be able to sort of adapt on the fly and that pressure is what you enjoy about some of these events um one of the things that people ask me a lot about what i do because i think when you live in this ecosystem in san francisco um no matter who you are whether you're a caterer musician or photographer you kind of end up uh, working a lot of the same venues, right? Because it's sort of a self-reinforcing thing. You get experience in those places. Uh, people like your work in those places. You get called back to work more at those same places. Right. And one of the things that people ask me a lot is, okay, well, you photograph a lot at uh, San Francisco City Hall, for example, or you do a lot of shoots uh, at uh, Baker Beach or the Palace of Fine Arts. Um, how do you keep yourself creatively inspired and creatively motivated every time you come back to that place with a new couple, you know, how do you invent new things? So I would I'd love to kick that same question over to you and say, like, how do you, you know, because a lot of the Russian weddings, for example, have a similar repertoire in terms of the songs that people want to hear, the songs that people expect to hear, uh, the songs that you know are surefire, songs that are going to get people moving on the dance floor. Um, how do you approach sort of the next gig? How do you think about it in terms of inspiring yourself creatively and getting yourself uh, motivated for, for that type of energy that you're going to need? 
Well, uh, there's always room for uh, creativity. The thing is, you know, some people prefer to compile uh, lengthy song lists in advance, which kind of limits your ability to uh, freely move around from song to song. And uh, uh, my experience tells me that song lists are a sure recipe for disaster because um, there is no way you could predict in advance what this particular group of 100 or 150 people will want to hear. For example, this guy likes, uh, I don't know, Bruno Mars, and this girl is crazy about uh, Ariana Grande, and the parents of the bride don't give it that rats behind about all that. They want to hear uh, Frank Sinatra's uh, My Way. So there is no way you could compile a comprehensive song list and stick to it. So um, I, I do not uh, recommend the, the newlyweds to waste time on, you know, preparing song lists because here is the thing. Um, as, as a wedding musician, I need to respect the newlyweds' personal tastes and preferences. But at the same time, uh, I need to cater to everyone in the room. And there is no way for me to know in advance who is going to be there. Uh, people uh, come from totally different social, educational, uh, political backgrounds. There are guests of different ethnicities. There are people of different ages. There is no way you could just compile one universal song list and stick to it because it's it's not going to work out well. So, um, to me, there is always this element of surprise. And I, I try to read the crowd and see what song would be appropriate at any given moment. And since we have, uh, me and people I work with, have uh, a huge, huge... Uh, amount of songs ready to be played at any given moment. I mean, it's really easy for us to decide on the fly. While we are playing one song, we're already thinking about the next one. Uh, we quickly evaluate the situation, what's going on on the dance floor. Is it packed? Are people tired? Are they going to leave the dance floor soon because they are exhausted and they need, you know, a few minutes to catch their breath? So would it be appropriate to play a slow song right now or maybe an upbeat song? And how many young people are there on the dance floor? Would it be okay to play Jason Derulo or, um, I don't know, Lady Gaga? Or maybe we should concentrate on the older part of the audience and play something, I don't know, maybe some Italian song or maybe some power ballad. So there is no way of knowing in advance. And... Uh, it's always very interesting to, uh, you know, how the things will turn out. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the people that work with you, they need to be confident in the fact that you have this, like, almost boundless repertoire of music. Because if, if you're basically asking people, listen, don't give me, you know, because I'm sure you get that question, right? Like, oh, can we give you a song list of things we want you to play? And if you tell them let's, you know, let's kind of step away from the song list and kind of rely more on my sensibility and my creativity to feel out the crowd, then probably the next question they're going to ask is, well, how, what does your repertoire look like? Like, can you, you know, if you wanted to do, if we wanted you to do Lady Gaga, do you have somebody in your band that can sing 
like Lady Gaga? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, how does that, how do you answer those types of questions? Well, uh, first and foremost, um, I don't recall a single time where people would just come to me not having seen me in action. So when, uh, when people approach me for their upcoming event, uh, it's, I think, 100% of the time they have seen us before. They know what to expect. They fully appreciate the level of artistry of all the people involved. And uh, they trust me completely. Uh, I think trust is a very important factor when you deal with your vendor. I mean, if you don't trust the person, you know, to start with, why would you hire them? Uh, also, I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, I, I won't discuss the song list with, uh, with the newlyweds. Of course, this is not the case. I mean, there are some pivotal moments at every wedding that need to be carefully planned. I mean, the first dance, the parents-children dance, maybe some ceremonial elements, blessings over bread or wine, you know, some traditional things that you do at Jewish weddings, at Russian weddings, uh, many other ethnic weddings. So this has to be planned in advance, and that's where the newlyweds get their chance to uh, to use their creativity and pick some interesting and moving song that is not overplayed, uh, that is not going to bore everyone to death, and that has some special meaning to them, you know, that actually pulls some strings and that will make the rest of the crowd cry. Uh, so, uh, of course, we have a, uh, a list of songs that we recommend or suggest, but uh, at the end of the day, it's totally up to the newlyweds. Uh, when it comes to the rest of the party, that should be 100% up to us as performers to decide what to play. And that's where the newlyweds will have to rely on us. Uh, my ideal situation is uh, the situation where I am in full control, uh, doing my stuff, doing what I know best. And, uh, you know, to let the newlyweds relax and have their, their fun. Because, I mean, the wedding day is very stressful. You know, if they have to uh, deal with the song list and uh, the itinerary and the food and stuff like that, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a complete disaster. It's going to ruin the, the special evening for them. So... Um, Trust is, I think, the most important thing when it comes to uh, picking a vendor. I mean, yeah. if you can't trust the person, if you have to do it yourself, if you have to spend your time, uh, like your valuable hours, days, and weeks, you know, browsing the internet, trying to find the comprehensive answers to the most important questions, instead of just relying on your vendor, because you know he, he will do the job, and you won't have to interfere, you know. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to micromanage your vendor on your wedding day and take away from your experience. I, I say the same thing, and I've heard many other wedding vendors from all different walks of life say that to their clients. Um, and one of the things that I I think was really interesting about what you said is that so many people are uh, bringing you on board because they've seen you in action. You know, I, I don't know that there's any other job other than, than a musician where 
you, you truly are performing, maybe like being a wedding officiant, I guess, in some sense is a performance, but you know, you're, you are performing. It's that same audition that you had when you were a kid. Every time you go out there, you're basically showing what you can do, you know? Exactly. Um, and one of the things that I read um, uh, as I was looking through your work and, and some of the reviews that your clients wrote um, is that you're a really good communicator. And I can tell that just by talking to you, like you're a very eloquent person and uh, you speak very well. Thank you so much. And you know, it's true. And, and one of the things that uh, people wrote about you is that you're a great communicator and a very like reliable and proactive communicator in the run-up to the wedding that you talk and sort of prepare clients. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how you, you know, from the time, let's say somebody engages you and says, hey, you know, we've got a wedding six months out, eight months out, something like that. Well, what's your process like in terms of how you prepare for the wedding with the couple? Well, the preparation starts immediately uh, after the contract has been signed. And to me, uh, it's all about commitment. Uh, it's not just, you know, another gig. Uh, it's, it's a truly unique event. And it, there is huge responsibility riding on my shoulders. You know, I, as the entertainment provider, have to be fully 100% dedicated to making this event stand out. Uh, I start with seeing the venue, you know, uh, exploring my options in terms of uh, like technical stuff. You know, I need to, to learn about uh, how much equipment we need to make it sound great, uh, depending on the room size, whether it's an outdoor event or an indoor event, uh, how much power we need, uh, what's the uh, room's layout, uh, are there high ceilings, low ceilings? Uh, is it soundproof? Are the acoustics okay? Because it, it will greatly impact the quality of the sound. So this is the first thing to take care of. The, the next thing would be to get in touch with the rest of people involved, the rest of the vendors. Uh, it's especially true when it comes to uh, the caterer because uh, well, being a wedding musician is not like being just a musician uh, on so many levels. I mean, it's, it's very important how you play and sing, but it's also very important uh, whether or not you understand the concept of a wedding reception and uh, how intertwined you know, things are. Uh, for example, uh, it's very important whether you have uh, your uh, food served like family style or is it a buffet, because this will impact the length of the breaks, for example. It's one thing when everything, but the, the food is on the table and some people are eating and the rest of them are dancing. It's a completely different thing when there is a buffet and there is this huge line of people trying to, to get some roast beef, you know, and uh, it, it also will affect the um, layout, the, the floor plan, where the tables are, where the band is where the dance floor is, how you will communicate with the crowd, how you will keep them engaged. A uh, very important thing uh, is to, to be in uh, constant contact with the event planner or coordinator uh, so that you know exactly how much time you have on your hands for this particular segment of the wedding uh, before they need to serve, let's say, the main course. Uh, you need to know exactly what time the first dance is going to happen. You need to uh, to know exactly 
uh, when there is going to be a, a toast or a speech. I mean, basically, uh, your frontman or the band leader uh, is not just a person who sings or plays, and it's not just a person who uh, maintains this contact with the crowd trying to engage them uh, or entertain them. It's also, uh, on some level, an event coordinator because it's it's up to him uh, ultimately what's going to happen at any given moment. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and you really have to uh, understand the schedule of the day. And one of the things that I've realized as well is that um, you know, you and I are both in creative disciplines. Our job is to show up to the day. Um, our job is to show up to the day uh, and and essentially create something out of the elements that are there. Right. For me, the elements are uh, the people, the outfits, the setting. For you, the elements are the energy, the emotion. Uh, you know, the the musical tastes, feeling out the crowd, those types of things. Uh, but you need to have. A strong structure in place and that sounds like that's kind of what you're saying that it you, once you have a strong structure once you understand how the reception is going to go when the food's going to be served who's going to take the microphone and speak then within that structure you can be really creative um, but if you have uh, a lot of surprises then it becomes harder to kind of stay in your game is that kind absolutely of what you're and what i i'm trying to convey here uh, essentially is uh, it's not enough that you know the schedule. It's not enough that you are able to work around the schedule. It's very important that you, as uh, as a band leader, actively participate in the creation of the schedule. I mean, it should be your baby. Uh, your input as a band leader and the frontman is invaluable. I mean... Um, Many times uh, it has happened in my practice that I would spot some discrepancies in the schedule right away because my experience teaches me that this part just cannot be done. Or if it's done, it's going to ruin everything. It's going to mess up the reception. So it's very important to keep an eye uh, on these things. And this is not something uh, your regular musician is capable of doing. Uh, they just lack the experience and the knowledge. Uh, so it's, as I said, uh, being a wedding musician is a totally different type of career. You need to be involved at every step of the process. It's not like you come over, you know, set up your equipment, play and get out of there. It's it's a very uh, complicated, uh, complex and uh, elaborate process. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. And um, I want to... Uh, maybe shift gears for, for just a second here. Um, cause I, I find, uh, we've talked a lot about process and kind of some more technical things. Um, I, I find that as I, uh, meet people, uh, whether it's people that I'm going to be, you know, documenting their wedding or just random people, they ask you, Oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a wedding photographer. Uh, one of the first questions I get from people is, Oh my God, you must have some crazy stories. You know, how many weddings have you done? Over a thousand weddings? You must have some crazy story. So I I thought it would only be fair to ask you that same question. I don't know about crazy, but can you think of maybe some experiences that you've had in this world of, of wedding and event, uh, as, as a wedding and event uh, musician, uh, some unforgettable experiences that, that have really stuck with you through the years? Well, uh, you know, right off the top of my head, there was this 
wedding that we did not too long ago. I think it was in New York. And uh, it was an incredible experience on the emotional level because uh, it was where we got a chance to create something truly unique. During the ceremony, we had an a cappella choir uh, perform some traditional Jewish prayers. And uh, we had uh, some of the greatest singers from New York and Chicago uh, in this choir, and the great soloist from Chicago. He is also a marvelous uh, MC, uh, and I've been working with him uh, on, on a regular basis for the last few years. His name is Morat Sidelsky, he's from Chicago, as I said. Uh, he is one-of-a-kind performer and uh, great voice, great chops, uh, incredible personality. And uh, when we, we did this unique arrangement, you know, for six vocalists and the soloist, and as we were singing it, uh, well, I saw people cry, literally cry, but what what uh, impressed me even more is that the singers themselves were crying. So that's something that cannot be overestimated. You know, it's it's one of those experiences when you feel that you've really touched someone's life in a in a great way. You know, you made people um, go through some I don't know feelings that only seldom resurface, you know, because, you know, our everyday life kind of dictates that we keep these feelings deep inside, you know, and then all of a sudden, just a few sounds, you know, just a few chords kind of uh, turn your soul inside out and make all those feelings pour out. Uh, and that's, that's an incredible experience. And uh, this is probably one of the most unforgettable moments that I've, I've experienced in, in the recent past mm. as a wedding musician. Yeah, this is really interesting. So you were, I, I'm envisioning, was it in a hotel or an outdoor? It was, it was in a hotel. In a hotel. So there was, uh, people were seated, was it, a, uh, it was a Jewish wedding? It was a Jewish wedding. They had the chuppah and everything. Okay. And so there was just a, a set of uh, vocalists standing like off to the side and we were on on the balcony okay and you were part of the of, that of, choir looking the main room uh-huh you were part of the choir i i was singing the bass part and i was also uh playing some string parts here and there mm. that must have been really special what do you think it was that made the the people who were singing alongside you uh cry like what, what brought on that overwhelming emotion uh well uh, if we're speaking about the uh, artists, you yes. know, who were with me on the stage, uh, I think it's uh, it's a combination of factors. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, it's you know the nature of a wedding is such that everyone gets you know his turn or her turn, you know, to sing as a soloist, and it hardly ever happens when uh, a few people at once, you know, have to collaborate on something 
um, of, of, of this unique nature. I, I mean, I grew up as a choir singer and conductor, you know. To me, it will always be one of the greatest influences. And whenever I hear a choir perform, it always brings tears to my eyes because it's, you know, on a personal level, I feel connected to this particular genre, so to speak, you know, this particular uh, style of music. Uh, but also, it has this incredible magical power. Uh, I mean, all of a sudden, I'm 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 recalling uh, m one of my favorite books, uh, Three Comrades, and uh, how they used to to sing. And there was this guy, this uh, this character that was obsessed with choir singing. He would listen to it all the time. It's 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 not random. I mean, there is some something very special, something very magical about a bunch of people uh, singing together. This is uh, an experience that is like no other. I mean, when you express your feelings and you join your voice with the rest of the voices in a choir, it creates this unbelievable atmosphere uh, that can hardly be recreated in, in a different setting. Yeah. So I, I think that's what contributed to, to this yeah. to this effect. Yeah. yeah. And I as you were speaking, I I was really feeling uh, back to an experience that I've had now many times. Um, maybe two, three years ago I started doing yoga. And uh, have you done a yoga class before? No, You've never no. done a yoga class. Um, so uh, when a yoga class typically begins, at the start, um, everybody will make the sound of om mm -hmm, together, mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of like a long, drawn-out note, you know, lasts for, for a few seconds, um, and then they'll do it again at the end of the class. Um, and depending on how, the lar how large the class is, it can be like a f you know, fairly normal volume, but sometimes... Um, on a um, like a Sunday morning yoga class when there's 120, 130 people in a room together, um, it's an incredible sound. I mean, it's not like something trivial, you know, like you feel it like in here um, uh, when, when you hear that. And that was real. I think that was like my first experience feeling what you were talking about, that like when people come together and sing together, it's not like something that just passes you by like it is truly a magical thing even if it's not they're not professional musicians they're people from all over san francisco that came to a yoga class but they make that sound together and it's like whoa you know and then there's this one chant um this uh, yoga instructor uh, mark morford that i um i go to his classes there's this one chant that he likes to do at the end of a class um and it ends with the word rum it's like a a sanskrit i guess chant it ends with the word rum um, and he will have us repeat it over and over. And initially I was actually a little bit hesitant about yoga chants because, um, I have a kind of a feeling that like, if I don't know what I'm saying, if it's in a foreign language, I don't really want to say it. Um, so I just listened for a while, you know, and I wouldn't, um, and you'd have this, you know, 120 people doing this chant ending in this word rum. Um, and he would sort of, we would repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Um, and then he would get like, he would ask us to do a little quieter, a little louder, and then he would get us to say, okay, now like really like full volume and people would repeat it. And then they would go like as, as loud as they can. And they would get to the end of that syllable. They would say rum and then it would stop 
and you just hear this like rum and and it like that m just like echoes through the room you know and it was like the first time i heard it i was like wow i mean it really blew my mind incredible so i could totally see how that that could have happened yeah i mean it's not a coincidence that you know these chants are an integral part of uh many religious procedures in, in, in different cultures, you know, Catholic, Russian Orthodox, Jewish, uh, Buddhist, and I can go on and on. I mean, there is this certain magical, uh, mystical power uh, when a group of people gets together and sings in unison. I mean, it's definitely uh, a very high energy, you know, being sent from this group of people somewhere into this like cosmos or whatever it is there is definitely something uh, we cannot possibly define you know or describe in scientific terms it's on a purely emotional level spiritual level so yeah i think it's uh, it's something quite unlike any anything else yeah. you can experience um i remember the, the wedding that uh, we spoke about where i uh, maybe one of the first weddings that we worked at together which was the big one in the palace hotel um i remember you were there with with several band members and you had this um tie that looked like a piano keyboard oh yeah do you remember that <laughs> yeah. i think i just saw this tie somewhere and i got totally captivated by it because it wasn't um uh, too uh too bright and uh, this is something you you want to keep an eye on you don't want to outshine the guests or god forbid the bride and groom so you need to uh, uh, stick to like modest darker colors at the same time uh, i mean once a person wears this tie it's really hard to you know mistake him for somebody else you know so you, you know right away you're dealing with the musician so I thought it would be a great idea, and uh, I, it's also very important to me that my band looks as a cohesive whole. You know, I don't want it to be uh, like a uh, you know band of gypsies, you know, wearing all kinds of dresses and uh, color jackets and stuff like that. And this is unfortunately the case uh, more often than not, and uh, I, I don't think it's it's a great thing, you know, when your band looks like a, a bunch of strangers. Uh, I I I think this is very important that your band looks as a, as a band. Uh, I I don't think it would be uh, you know the proper approach uh, to try and stand out visually. You know my job is to keep people happy and to keep them dance. I mean the less distraction the better. Uh, what is uh, definitely uh, permissible and uh, and uh, okay with me is when my female lead dresses up you know and uh, wears something that really catches the eye but that's something different uh, that's something totally different again you know uh, how many times have you seen a, a female lead wearing a white dress for example you know i've seen it happen quite a few times and uh, i i think it's a huge mistake i mean the only person Wearing white should be the bride, right? That's right. That's right. So, in fact, I can think of a time where I was at a wedding where the bride was getting ready, and one of the guests arrived, and she was wearing a white dress. And the other, the bridesmaids and the other guests saw it uh, before the bride came downstairs. So they're like, "Oh my God, she's wearing a white dress. What do we do?" 
and they w- the band was uh, unloading their stuff at the time, and they overheard this like commotion. And as it turned out, the lead singer, the female vocalist of the band, had a bunch of dresses in her car. Uh, and so she offered, she's like, hey, why don't you come out to the car, try on some of my dresses, and is it, you know, luck would have it, something fit. And so they were able to get this wedding guest out of the white dress before the bride came down to, uh, that's one of the stories that I, I, I'll never forget too. Saved by the band. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, um, yeah, you. it sounds like you have a real um, strong feeling about sort of a, a sense of uniformity and maybe even like a sense of service you know, that in, a, in one sense, you're an entertainer and you're supposed to create excitement. But in another sense, you're there to serve the couple and serve the energy of the day rather than to try to steal be the, the star and steal the thunder. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Do you remember um, your own wedding and what that was like? We didn't have a formal wedding. We just went to the city hall and got married. There were no witnesses, no guests, no parents even. And I, I think, you know, having done so many weddings, I, I, I wouldn't want my special day to, to, to be like this formal, you know. Um, in some sense, you know, I, I, you know, I think I, I wanted it to be very personal, you know, just between my wife and I. I see. Okay. And so it was just no dancing, no party. Nothing. Just nothing just a couple of sign, signatures sign the page and that's it yeah but i can totally see my daughter's wedding and right. me being there <laughs> yeah tell me about that what how old is your daughter now how old is rachel 18 18 years old okay and you, you have a vision for her wedding in your mind oh, I, I'm, I'm trying not to think about it just yet okay you know, I, I want to give myself a few more years of peace and quiet before i have to like give my daughter away yeah to some Strange person. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not that strange, but you you never know. At my wedding, like I was I was debating how I wanted to, to structure it. My father's a, a poet and he loves to do like presentations and public speaking and he, he writes a lot of poetry and stories and things in Russian. So um I asked him to to MC my wedding in a way, like to help the reception along. It was really meaningful for me to have him do it and uh meaningful for him i think to to do it do you think that you want to participate in that way in your daughter's wedding when the time comes uh, i don't think so uh, i mean it will depend on her decision uh, entirely uh as as a father as a parent i think it, it, my my place would be you know alongside my daughter just being there for her enjoying things that are happening and uh showing her support uh meanwhile I'm, I'm sure there will be a tight group of professionals on the stage taking care of business you know they will know what to say and when to say it you know what time would be appropriate for this or that and uh, this way i will feel much more relaxed and uh, I, I will know that my daughter is happy and relaxed knowing that everything is taken care of and uh, her dad is not going to say something uh, that will make her feel embarrassed. You know? That's right. Well, chances but are. Yeah, that's just me. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, one man's opinion. It, it definitely is not the absolute truth because nothing ever is. You know, it's, it's very individual. So we're getting back to the point, you know, that we've discussed already. Every wedding is a truly unique event like no other. 
So there is no way you could just take something as a rule and apply it to every wedding. I mean, you have to plan it from scratch because there are no two similar couples, no, no two similar people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you uh, a cut, just a couple more questions. And, uh, uh, the, the last one that I'll ask you, will kind of bring it back to where we started, I think in a way. Um, but you mentioned, um, that, uh, at a certain point here in San Francisco, you, you, you'd brought some equipment with you from Israel and uh, that was the sort of centerpiece of, of what you did musically. And then you, you know, was in your car and, and was stolen. Uh, I've had the experience as well of being here in San Francisco and having uh, my car broken into, um, having something stolen out of there. And then subsequently, you know, having things like that happen again, whether it was clients' cars that were broken into during a shoot. Uh, that's just the nature of the city that we live in. Um, and it's, and it's tough. And I've heard of a lot of stories of, you know, recently there's been a lot of crime and things like that, that, that have affected, uh, uh, professionals in our industry. Um, but I, I want like, you, you know, what did that feel like? Cause you, you had this, um, instrument that's kind of like a part of you, right. And it's such a centerpiece of what you do. And then you, you found that it had been stolen. Tell me about what that felt like for you. Well, it, it, it was, um, the, the night between two gigs. So this is the primary reason I decided uh, to, to leave the equipment in the car. I figured, you know, uh, if I take it out now and uh, haul it all the way to the fifth floor, then I'll have to bring it down again tomorrow and go to my next gig. And this is a uh, secured parking lot and we have a uh, patrol car you know, that drives around, you know, and keeps an eye on what's going on. So what's, what's the chance, you know, something bad will happen? It was my big mistake. But when, when uh, we came out the next morning, my daughter and I, I was driving her to school. I didn't even notice at first. And she climbed on the back seat and she was like, Dad, there is ice all over the seat. And that's when I realized it wasn't ice, it was, you know, the shattered glass. Uh, I, I, at that moment, I was mostly scared for her, you know. I, I was afraid she, she would get cut by, by the pieces of glass, you know. And then it, it hit me, it really hit me that I had a gig later on the same day and I have no equipment to work with. So, you know, I took a few deep breaths and I, I just went to the nearest music store and I uh, bought everything new and uh, I did a gig. And uh, I kind of prohibited myself from thinking about it. You know, I, I, I decided to leave it in the past because there was nothing I could do. Well, of course, I went to the police, you know, I filed the report, but I knew from the very beginning nothing good was coming out of it. So I just decided not to not to pay any more attention to this because it was like, uh, it was too much pressure, you know, mentally. And, uh, and uh, I just didn't want to, you know, concentrate on the bad stuff. I, I prefer to look into the future and, you know, see a brighter future and, and the good things that are going to eventually happen. So. Right. That seems really consistent with everything that you've told me and the way that you approach life and sort of your ability to be resilient and move forward. Yeah, that's a painful experience for sure. Um, I'm guessing you haven't 
left your equipment in the car since then. Ever. Never again. <laughs> Never again. Yeah. Never yeah. Again. Near, that it, it was a good lesson for me. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you and kind of bring it back to where you started, because I, I felt um, such strong emotion from you when you were talking about um, your mom and what an important person she was in your life and how she made these sacrifices for you and, and saw this path for you. Um, and I wanted to ask you how you now, as a, as a father, how you approach that with, with your own daughter. Like, did you initially, did you want her to follow in your footsteps or how did you think about her future and, and her career and, um, you know, what, based on the experiences that you had as a, as a son? Uh, well, there is, uh, a difference between me as a kid and my daughter. Uh, about the same age, uh, we had different aspirations from day one. I mean, when I was three, I already knew I wanted to be a musician. I would just play piano all day long, you know, trying to play by ear some familiar songs, you know, I would sing all the time. Uh, my daughter, she, she, it took her a while to decide what to do with her life and i i don't think she is quite there yet i mean she's still weighing different possibilities and uh, she has way more opportunities to explore uh, so i thought it was very important that i do not pressure her into doing something uh, my primary obligation as a parent as i see it uh, is to give her the ability to choose for herself uh, and uh, give her like proper education like the, the, the very basic education on which she can build uh, build it further so uh, my wife and I did everything you know for her to to be able to read and speak several languages and uh, be a, a literate person as much as we could and uh, we did everything to familiarize her with uh, music and other arts i mean she's a great singer uh, i mm, i tried to teach her play piano uh, it didn't go really well because she wasn't that interested and uh, i thought it was very important that i i do not apply any extra pressure because i didn't want her to hate music you know, I, I know quite a few examples where parents would push their children uh, to the limit and that would result in a complete disaster. You know, kids would just hate music or sports or whatever they were forced to do against their will. Uh, so um, we, we took a very liberal approach and we, we tried to stuff her head with all the knowledge that we could possibly possibly give her without overpowering her in, in, in any way, you know, uh, and uh, without making her feel violated in any way. And it turned out to be the right decision, I think. I mean, right now she is a freshman at UCSB uh, studying economics. And uh, I mean, it's, it's not exactly the time where she has to pick her final major. You know, she has a good few years ahead of her to, to make that decision, but at least we know 
you know, we've opened some doors for her and the rest is up to her. And of course, we will support her in any way possible. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for taking the time to come in here and kind of open open yourself up and open your heart and talk about your experiences. I learned a lot about you that I uh, had no idea. Uh, and I'm really glad that we have this opportunity to talk. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I sure. really appreciate the opportunity of... Uh, of being here and uh, spending the time with one of the greatest professionals oh, thank you. that I personally know. Thank you for the compliment. Thank you. And the, the, the nicest human being. Oh, thanks. So, so it's, it's, it's been fun. Great. And I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the Sasha Photography Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. See you next week.